For a sermon this morning, we're going to be considering the first chapter of the book of Haggai. We'll be returning to 2 Corinthians when I'm, uh, I'll spend two uh, Sundays this summer serving as the, uh, the only pastor here while uh, the other pastors are on vacation. And we'll do uh, two sermons then on 2 Corinthians again. And we'll also, in the other service at that time, be looking at the book of Haggai. Um, but as I began to look at the book and saw that, uh, at least in my mind, it more naturally broke into three sermons rather than two, um, we'll therefore take this morning as an opportunity to start uh, looking at that book today, and we'll, we'll finish that look over the summer. Now, Haggai might seem like an odd choice to some of you, uh, others uh, maybe less so, but Haggai is not a book of the Bible that you often hear people getting particularly excited about. Uh, the minor prophets in general are far too often something of an afterthought for us. But as I looked at this book recently, I was struck by its message and by its obvious relevance for us as Christians. And I'm looking forward to spending three sermons over the coming months looking at this book together. So, as we get started, what is the book of Haggai and where does it fit into the Bible? It's helpful, I think, to put Haggai in the context of what has come before it, to essentially zoom out for a moment, to look at the big picture, and then once we have that, to zoom back in on what God is doing in the book of Haggai. So the Bible is the story of God's work in the world. We read of God making the world. He makes man and woman and puts them in charge as his representatives, and man and woman rebel. They reject the very one who made them and gave them all good things. God, in his mercy at this point, rather than simply obliterating humanity and starting over, decides to rescue man and woman from the condition of rebellion and death that they have freely chosen. Several events follow that that result from the struggle that ensues between the faithful line that God plans to use to redeem the world and the line of rebellion. But a major turning point comes in that with Abraham. God promises to make of Abraham a great nation. He promises his descendants a land, the land of Canaan. He promises to be with them in a special and unique way. And he promises that through Abraham, all families of the earth will one day be blessed. He calls Abraham to faith in him and allegiance to him. And in return, he promises Abraham these blessings. That through the seed of Abraham... God intends to restore the world. Following that, Abraham's descendants then do grow into that great nation. God rescues them from their enemies. He settles them into the land that he had promised them. He dwells with them. The scriptures from the beginning affirm that God is in all places. He dwells, though, with Abraham's descendants, Israel, now in a special way. And that special closeness that he has with his people, is manifested this time first with the tabernacle and then later with the temple. The temple is God's house in the midst of his people. It's a central place for worship and it serves as a central reminder and representation of God's special presence among his people, his being particularly close to them. So Israel is given all of these blessings But in spite of that, they go through repeated cycles of rebellion against God. And the rebellion escalates to such a level that God decides to remove Israel from his presence 
and to take them from the land that he had given them. Repeating the sin of the first man and woman, Israel has rebelled and has forfeited their blessings of the promised land and of God's special presence. And so God brings in foreign nations to remove much of Israel from the land and to destroy the temple. To destroy that central reminder and representation of God's presence with them. But the story does not end there. Because God's promise does not end there. Instead, God promises to restore his people to the land and to restore his special temple presence with his people. And in keeping with his promise, in 538 B.C., a remnant of Israel from the tribe of Judah returns to the promised land. And they begin work on rebuilding the temple with their foreign king's blessing. But other local people groups soon begin to object to this work. They make it difficult for Judah to continue their rebuilding effort. They do what they can to keep Judah from this work. And when a new king takes the throne, they object to him about it. And eventually, an order is given from this foreign king to Judah for them to stop their construction work. And these local non-Israelite groups force the people of Judah to stop rebuilding the temple. And no further work is done on the temple for about 15 years after that. And that, at that point in the story, is where Haggai shows up and speaks to the people of Judah. We're going to break Haggai chapter 1 into two parts this morning as we look at it, starting now with Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Uh, As I'll sometimes do, I'm going to restore um, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, Uh, to the text as I read it. Uh, Many of you will know that our English translations tend to follow a tradition of replacing the Hebrew covenant name for God, uh, Yahweh, with the title, The Lord, uh, in capital letters. And to give a sense of uh, the intimacy, the personalness of uh, this conversation, this prophetic message, I'll restore that name so we get more of a sense of it. And so with that in mind, let's hear now from the first portion of our text. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of Yahweh. Then the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put it in a bag with holes. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says Yahweh. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares Yahweh of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. 
Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. This is God's word. So Haggai here is confronting Israel for its unfaithfulness in this text. And I want to ask three things about that, about how they're confronted. First, what did Judah do wrong? Second, what did it mean? And third, what was the result? So what did Judah do wrong? What was the significance of that action? And then what came about from it? So first, what did Judah do wrong? And that is the easiest one, really. Israel was making no effort to rebuild the temple. They were making no effort to rebuild God's house in their midst. Now, we might remember, as I mentioned earlier, that in the book of Ezra, we're told that the building project had been stopped 15 years earlier by force. And while that is true, we also see here that a lot has changed in 15 years. It seems that by the time of Haggai, that decision 15 years earlier was less of a valid reason for still not rebuilding the temple and more of a convenient excuse. A different man sat on the throne, but no request to the new foreign king to rebuild the temple is recorded. Moreover, C.S. Kyle points out that if some of the Jews were in a position to build more luxurious houses for themselves, as Haggai is describing, it seems hard to believe that they were particularly persecuted or oppressed at this point in time. In other words, Judah could have sought to rebuild God's temple, but instead they contented themselves with the repeated claim that the time simply was not right. So that is what Judah did wrong. They made no effort to rebuild the temple. But second, what did that failure to rebuild mean? What was its significance? And here we need to be careful. God's fixing on the temple is not because he was somehow limited from being present without it. It also is not because the temple acted as some sort of talisman for Israel. It's not what we see going on here. We need to remember that the temple was a reminder and a representation of God's presence in the midst of his people. And so to rebuild the temple was to say that God's presence was a top priority for Judah. On the other hand, to not rebuild the temple said that God's presence with them was not that important. It was of secondary importance at best, or it was a matter of indifference at worst. Judah's choice not to rebuild said that being with God, that honoring him and enjoying him was not their primary pursuit in life. So what was instead? Instead, they seemed to be going after material prosperity as their primary pursuit. So that's what it means. Judah's failure to rebuild the temple reveals that the relationship with God, their honoring him and his presence with them, was not the primary pursuit of their life. They were pursuing material prosperity instead. Now, what was the result of that? Well, the result was that God kept their material prosperity from satisfying them. Several commentators on this passage point out that what's described here seems not so much to be scarcity or famine, as it is a sort of moderate prosperity that fails to satisfy. 
In other words, as they made material prosperity their primary pursuit, God kept them from achieving it and from being satisfied by what of it they did achieve. So Israel failed to rebuild the temple. It means that being with God and honoring Him is not their primary pursuit in life. And as a result, God keeps the things that they are primarily pursuing from really satisfying them. It's worth noting as we think about this that particularly in the Mosaic administration of the covenant, prosperity often had a role in God's blessing of His people. It was supposed to serve as a common and happy byproduct of their faithful relationship with Him rather than as their primary pursuit. But here, of course, we see Judah flipping that on its head. Here we see them mixing the two up, making prosperity their primary pursuit and their relationship to God a mere side concern. And once we see this mixing, this swapping of priorities that Israel has done, taking what should have been a byproduct and making it a primary pursuit, we can start to realize that Israel's error here is not an uncommon one. In fact, it's one that most of us make all of the time. Psychotherapist Lori Gottlieb wrote an article for The Atlantic in 2011 that was titled, How to Land Your Kid in Therapy. The article contained a number of interesting observations and critiques of modern parenting, but one that struck me was the focus that we often have on the pursuit of happiness and how we teach our children to do the same. Gottlieb recounts the struggle of 20 and 30-somethings who said that they had good parents, a great childhood, a good job. Those who were married said they had great spouses, but they still said that they felt adrift in life. One described her situation like this. She said, I am happy, but I'm not as happy as I should be. And though her clients pursued happiness more and more intensely, rather than becoming more happy, they often found that they made themselves less happy. Gottlieb then turns to Barry Schwartz, a professor of social theory at Swarthmore College, who puts it like this. He says, happiness as a byproduct of living your life is a great thing. But happiness as a goal is a recipe for disaster. What is Schwartz saying here? He's pointing out that happiness only really works as a hoped-for byproduct of a meaningful, well-lived life. If you live your life for the purpose of happiness, you will almost certainly not be happy. In fact, you will probably make yourself miserable. And yet, that is how so many are being taught to live their lives today, to live them in the pursuit of happiness. This kind of error is, of course, not a new problem. It's the same problem we just saw Judah having in our passage. It's the problem of taking a hoped-for byproduct of our primary pursuit in life and making it our primary pursuit instead. Building our lives around the pursuit of happiness is an example of that. But there are also other ways that we as Christians make the same mistake. We can think, for example, of one's job, one's career. God calls us to work hard in ways that will provide for our family and ourselves, in ways that will serve society well, in ways that will help to fulfill that cultural mandate that he gave to Adam and Eve. And at the same time, when we work hard and dedicate ourselves to work that benefits our neighbor, sometimes a byproduct of that is that we can get wealthy. 
we can even get rich. And that can be okay. I imagine that can be nice. (laughs) But the moment that prosperity beyond what we need goes from being a possible byproduct of our work and becomes the primary pursuit of our work, then everything changes. For one, as with Judah here, when riches are our primary pursuit, we will never be satisfied with any amount of riches. And second, more importantly, by making riches our primary pursuit, we shift God from the center of our lives to the periphery. He's no longer our primary pursuit, but he's a hoped-for secondary blessing at best, or a matter of indifference at worst. In a career, the same dynamic can be at work in areas of power or respect or prestige. In these ways and more, we see this temptation in our jobs, the temptation to make a hoped-for byproduct our primary pursuit. But we see it in other places, too. We see it, for instance, in how we raise our children. We all want healthy and successful children. But there's a whole world of difference between approaching our child rearing in such a way that our children's happiness and worldly success is our main goal, our primary pursuit, on the one hand, and approaching child rearing in such a way that our children being faithful disciples to Jesus is our primary pursuit, on the other. Now, a happy and successful life in terms of this world can be a byproduct of a life of faithful discipleship. But it isn't always. And if you're thinking about this, if you have children and you aren't sure which your primary purpose really is in your heart, then ask yourself this question honestly. Imagine two pictures for your child's future. In one, they're happy, financially stable and successful. They're married to an attractive and likable spouse. They and or their spouse have a successful and respected professional career, and they're raising children who are also high achieving. But their faith in Christ is non-existent. It's either so nominal as to be meaningless, or they quietly and politely deny the Christian faith. That's picture number one. And then consider picture number two. Your child grows up to work a low-wage and dead-end job, There are no future career prospects in sight. Maybe they're not married, or maybe they're married to someone with no greater prospects than they have. Their future is uncertain. Their lives have a number of strains. Their troubles from many directions are many. But there is no doubt in your mind that they love and trust in Jesus Christ, both for this life and the next. Now, of course, no one wants to have to choose between these two options, But as you picture those two possibilities, which one, honestly, in your gut, bothers you more? The troubled and struggling Christian or the happy, stable, and successful non-Christian? To whatever degree we prefer or find ourselves more attracted to the picture of the successful non-Christian future for our child, there we learn what our primary pursuit in raising our children really is we could apply the same examination to our marriages. Whether you're married and it's the marriage that you have, or if you're single and it's the marriage that you hope for. For single people, when you daydream about the traits you hope for in a spouse, and for married people, when you think about traits in your spouse that you wish were different, how often are those traits, traits that are geared towards making you 
more comfortable or raising your social status? And how often are they traits that you know will better challenge you and your family to be more like Jesus? What you most desire in a spouse reveals to what extent you see Christ as the primary pursuit of your marriage or the extent to which you are pursuing your own personal benefit. We could go on and on and we can look at different elements of our lives, but most importantly, we want to look at our life as a whole. Where does God fit in? Is he the center of our life? Is, he, is being with him, honoring him, and serving his kingdom our primary purpose? Or is it more of a side project where we build our own houses? Our financial houses, or our good marriage houses, or our perfect children houses, or some other house that we want for ourselves. God here assures us that when we take those items, those other personal houses, those things that are supposed to be hoped-for byproducts of the life of faith, and when we make them our primary pursuit in life, not only do we lose often the presence of God, but we also lose the thing that we're pursuing. When pursued in themselves, these things never satisfy. How much money is enough? Usually, it's just a little bit more. How high do our kids need to achieve? Usually just a bit higher. How much more accomplished or attractive or prestigious or dedicated to our comfort does our spouse need to be? Well, just a little bit more. Pursued in themselves, these things never satisfy. So look at your life. Look within your life at the effort that you put into and the priority that you place on your relating to God. You're honoring God. You're being with God. You're working for his kingdom in what you do. What state is it in? Are you steadily, faithfully, step by step, building it up and pursuing it first? Is it the central work of your life? Or is it forgotten? Is now you tell yourself, not really the right time to be working on that? When you go there, do you find it in ruins? while at the same time you're fine-tuning your other pursuits in life. As Haggai says, consider your ways. That is where the first half of our passage this morning brings us. Thankfully, that is not where the text leaves us. It goes on to tell us of Judah's response. And so, let's read on, looking together at Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son, I'm sorry, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of Yahweh their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as Yahweh their God had sent him. And the people feared Yahweh. Then Haggai, the messenger of Yahweh, spoke to the people with Yahweh's message. I am with you, declares Yahweh. And Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. And they came and worked on the house of Yahweh of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. If you're at all familiar with the ministries of the Old Testament prophets, then this is a striking passage. Because what we see over and over again in the ministries of the prophets is that God sends his prophets to call his people to repentance 
and they almost invariably ignore him. But here we get something different. Here God's people heed the prophet's word. Here God's people actually repent. And as we see the repentance, and as we think about our own, I want to look at two things that we see here. I want to look at the substance of Judah's repentance, and then the process of Judah's repentance. So first, let's consider the substance of Judah's repentance. Judah hears God's word. They take it seriously. It says that they feared Yahweh, and then they obey. They begin to work on the temple. And it's important to note that Judah's response is not just a change in perspective, although it certainly includes a change in perspective, but it also includes actions that express that changed perspective. They not only change from thinking of God as peripheral in life to thinking of him as their primary pursuit in life, but they did things that were keeping with that conviction. Now, what would that look like in our lives? Well, once again, we could see it in specific areas of our life, and we can also see it in our lives as a whole. In specific areas of life, it means making our relationship and service to Christ central to all that we do. So our work is more about loving God's people and serving his world than it is about us. It's more about providing for our family, serving our clients and customers, and supporting our coworkers than it is about storing up riches or boosting our own prestige. Our child-rearing is primarily about disciple-making. And when it comes to what our children will be, we are less concerned with how they will reflect on us and more concerned with how they will faithfully serve Jesus Christ and his kingdom and reflect on him. Our marriage is seen less in terms of what we are entitled to and more in terms of what we can do to help our spouse grow in the relationship with Christ and also in how God might be using our spouse and our children to help us die more and more to ourselves and so imitate our Lord. And those pictures of what repentance looks like in specific areas of life could be multiplied, but we also need to ask what this should look like in our lives as a whole. Does your life as a whole communicate to God that you want him there? Or does it communicate that his presence is not really desired? We can think of it like this. Think of the way that you treat God in your day-to-day life. Think of whether or not you ignore him, of whether or not you avoid speaking to him or avoid listening to him, or whether you busy yourself with all sorts of tasks and distractions so that you don't have to look him in the eye. Consider how you treat God in your day-to-day life and then ask yourself, if you treated another human being, a friend, a family member, the way that you treat God, would they think that you liked them and wanted them around? Or would they think that you really wanted them to just leave you alone? Would they feel honored or dishonored? Wanted or unwanted? Remember that Judah not building the temple was an expression of their indifference to or even their avoidance of God's presence in their lives. Are you, in your own ways, communicating the same thing. So consider that. But even more than that, consider what it would look like for you to turn that around with God. What would the substance of your repentance look like? For Judah, it was building the temple. So what is it for you? 
What would your prayer life need to look like? What would your scripture life, I'm sorry, your scripture reading need to look like? How would you relate differently to your church or other Christians? How would you reflect differently on God? How would it affect your conduct? How would your life need to look different in order for you to make drawing close to and honoring God the primary pursuit of your life? That, we see here, is the substance of our repentance. Of course, if we look at that and think about that at all honestly, we realize that that is an extremely difficult thing. In many cases, it might feel impossible. Which is why, in addition to looking at the substance of repentance in this text, we also need to look at this passage to see the process of Judah's repentance. And the process of repentance is a bit striking in this text, actually. We can pass over it quickly without noticing it, but it's actually very important. In this text, we're reminded that true repentance is more of a dialogue than it is a monologue. We often think of repentance in terms of what we need to do by ourselves. God confronts us, to be sure, but then we need to respond, we often think, independently, laying out and following through on some sort of action plan. And on one level, there's some truth to that picture, and so we can see where we might get that idea, but on another level, we're reminded here that that's a fairly inadequate view of what repentance looks like. Look at how repentance works in verses 12 through 14 of our text. God has confronted his people in verses 1 through 11. But then this relational and supportive back and forth goes on in verses 12 through 14. In verse 12, Judah and its leaders hear God's word for what it is. And they fear God. And they obey him. But that's not the end of it. In verse 13, God responds to them with another message. An important message. He says to them, I am with you, declares Yahweh. God here responds with a word of encouragement. He responds with an assurance that he is with them even before they have rebuilt the temple. And not only does God encourage them, he also responds with empowerment. He empowers his people to obey, to do what they have set out to do. In the first half of verse 14, we read how God stirred up the spirits of the people of Judah and of their leaders. And then, after that, Judah gets to work on the house of God. God does not leave us on our own to repent, to straighten our lives out by ourselves. He is incredibly close, active, and compassionate in the process. He encourages and enables us to do what we set out to do for him. That's important because the tasks that this text calls us to are not easy ones. We're talking about reorienting our primary pursuits in life and then living accordingly. That can be, that should be, a very daunting undertaking. We can look at it at the outset and decide that as much as we might want it, it just can't be done. We can't do it. It's too much. But when we take that view, we assume that we're left to the tasks by ourselves. But this text tells us that we are not. In a sense, and this might seem like a sort of backwards way of looking at it, but in a sense we can see and say and consider how being confronted by God is similar to being confronted by a good and loving Christian. 
Have you ever been confronted by someone and it started out and you thought of what you had to apologize for and what you had to repent of and on some level it felt sort of impossible? You weren't sure that you could do it, even though you knew that you were wrong. But then that person confronts you and far from putting you on the spot and making you to struggle to repent on your own, they actually, in the conversation, enable your repentance. They invite your apology. They respond with forgiveness and encouragement rather than with coldness and condemnation. They lovingly draw you out and walk with you through your repentance. Have you ever had that experience yourself? I remember one such incident like that that I went through when I was in college. My second year of college, I had gone through a few rejections by girls that I had expressed some interest in, and as will often happen with a college student, I started to get a little bit bitter about the whole thing. And one way that I expressed this growing bitterness was by developing a bad habit of making dismissive and sometimes condescending jokes and comments about young women in general. I guess I did that with some hope that it would make me feel better. But basically, I just started acting like a jerk. And I kept that up in various groups, including when I was at RUF with the guys and the girls there in that college ministry that I was a part of. And while I think I knew that the jokes and comments I were making was not a good habit to get into, I didn't think I was really hurting anyone's feelings, which really just goes to prove that I was not only being a jerk, I was also being an idiot. So this went on, and then one day, one of the young ladies in our RUF contacted me and asked if we could meet for coffee on a Sunday afternoon. This was not a young lady that I was particularly close with, and it did not take too long for me to realize that I was going to be confronted about my attitude and my behavior lately. I put together that my joking about women had probably hurt and offended some of the girls in our U.S. As I thought about it, as I took a look at myself, as I realized what I'd done, I became more and more upset and embarrassed. As I thought about how I'd acted, what I needed to do and to, to say to make things right, while I knew it was necessary, I was more and more not looking forward to that coffee meeting. I was tense and nervous. I didn't know what the young lady would expect from me or how it would go. I felt weighted down by it. And so with all this on my mind, I went and we met. The young lady kindly but firmly told me how I'd made her and some of the other girls in our group feel. I took the first step that I needed to and told her that I was sorry. I tried to express my regret at how I'd been acting. And then something I hadn't planned on happened. That young woman met me where I was. She forgave me. She encouraged me and with, while not letting me off the hook, she also made it easier for me to repent. She enabled and assisted my repentance and turning from what I had been doing. While I came there expecting two monologues, one in which she confronts me and one in which I apologize and repent, what I got instead was a conversation. She met me and she lovingly but firmly accepted and aided my repentance. Instead of leaving that coffee meeting as two cold but technically reconciled individuals, we left as allies, even as friends. The conversation eventually moved on beyond my repentance to other things and when the time came, 
we made our way to the Astro Place subway station. We were in New York City at the time and took the six train to evening church where we worshiped God side by side. What that young lady gave me that afternoon was a gift. And it did not take too long for me to realize the value of it and the spiritual maturity and Christ-like heart that lay behind it. And so within two years of that coffee meeting, I had married her. Now, I like to tell that story, and I often uh, will tell it and try to encourage the young men in the youth group to look for a woman like that themselves. And Abigail, you could say, from 1 Samuel 25, a woman who will lovingly but firmly confront them in their sin and help them repent when necessary. But beyond that, even in general, we all see the beauty of that kind of confrontation when it comes from a brother or sister in Christ. But if our brothers and sisters in Christ can so lovingly confront us and can help our repentance to them, how much more will our Heavenly Father? How much more will our loving God aid us in our repentance? How much more will He compassionately draw close to us and help us along the way? But if we're honest with ourselves, we should ask, do we really expect that? Do we really think about that? Or when we're confronted with our sin, do we imagine God very differently from that? God's word has gone out to us this morning, not too unlike how it did in the days of Haggai. That is, after all, what the sermon is supposed to be. We are coming to God's word, and it is confronting us. And so God's word has gone out, and it has done that. It has confronted me as well as you. Where do we need to come to God in repentance? Where have you taken what should have been a hoped-for byproduct of a life pursuing Christ and made that thing your primary pursuit in life? Where have you taken Christ from the center of your life and pushed him to the periphery? Where have you, in thought, word, or deed, told God that it was not him that you wanted, but something else? What does repentance look like for you? What needs to change? How does your thinking or your attitude or your actions need to change? Where do you see it in the specifics of your life? And where do you see it in the larger patterns of your life? What are the first steps that you need to take to repent, that you need to take to obey? And are you looking at the path ahead and feeling like you cannot make it? Christ will not leave you to plod along the long road of repentance by yourself. He calls you this morning to take that first step in response to his word. In some cases, maybe it's the first step that we've taken before and need to take again. But he calls us to take that step, a decisive step, but really just the first one. And he longs to meet you when you do. He longs to assure you and to encourage you, to tell you, I am with you. He desires for you to believe him, to trust him, whether you feel his presence or not. And as you are encouraged, he longs to stir up your spirit and to enable you not just to take that first step, but the second and the third and beyond. He longs to complete the good work that he has begun in you. And so this morning, trust that our Lord is a loving Lord. He's not cold, distant, and exacting, but warm, close, and loving. 
Do not fear if you feel like you cannot complete your repentance all alone. In Christ, a friendly face sits across the table from you. Just begin, and he will meet you. Just step forward, and he will embrace you. Just open the door, and he will come in. And then you can begin the long walk of repentance and obedience together. Consider your ways this morning. For behold, he stands at the door and knocks. Amen.